I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept. I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon as well as their Patreon backers. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland and joining me are... Joe Byrne, also in Dublin, Ireland. And Mark Boyle in Vancouver in Canada. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about Burkina Faso, a landlocked country in West Africa, bordered by Mali to the northwest, Niger to the northeast, Benin to the southeast, and Togo and Ghana to the south. As of 2021, the country had an estimated population of just over 20 million. Total land area is around 274,000 square kilometers, or roughly 106,000 square miles, making it slightly smaller than Italy and slightly larger than New Zealand or the U.S. state of Colorado. Burkina Faso has a primarily tropical climate with two very distinct seasons, wet and dry. Its northern regions are in the Sahel, making them very dry and arid, while the more southern regions are cooler and more tropical. The Mosi tribe, which still dominates the country today, moved into the region around 1100 and still makes up around 50% of the ethnic population. In 1896, the country was colonized by the French as part of French West Africa. In 1958, a new nation named Upper Volta became a self-governing colony within the French community. In 1960, it gained independence with Maurice Yamego as president. However, since then, the country has struggled to maintain political stability with political coups or uprisings taking place in 1966, 1980, 1982, 1983, 1987, and twice in 2022. Burkina Faso overall is quite poor and is one of the world's economically developed countries with around 75% of people to this day living off of subsistence agriculture. Burkina Bay farmers are well known for working to music, usually drums. Burkina Faso is also one of the youngest countries in the world thanks to very high fertility. Women have on average five children each and a low average life expectancy which currently stands at just under 60 among the lowest in the world. The median age therefore is only around 17 and this has caused a massive spike in population over the past half century as the yearly population growth rate is more than double the world average. So what are we looking forward to talking about in today's episode? Joe, how about you go first? So an interesting event is uh, how being performatively scared of communism can help you get your borders back. Okay. A very veiled hint of what's what's coming up there. Mark, what about you? Uh, we, we have a, a good old-fashioned uh, leadership carousel to look forward to, uh, which doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, scream scream confidence in the in, in what was going on in that period, uh, which which okay. which overlaps to modern day. Yeah, I think I think I think we might have more than one leadership carousel going on, given, <laughs> given the amount of coups we're going to be talking about. And, and and that's just if we limit ourselves to written history. We'll see in the Middle Ages if we if we if we dove into all of the oral history, we'd be going through leadership yeah. carousels forever. I think so. Yeah. One thing I'll say is I I think I 
I think I might have suggested this one on the back of a really cool photograph I saw of some some architecture, Burkinabe architecture. So if you're at a computer or a smartphone, the, the Grand Mosque of, um, of Bobo di Lasso, so the second biggest city, is a really cool looking building. Um, is, it the, is that the one with all the sort of spikes? Exactly. Yes. And I've looked into that kind of mud brick architecture Mm. with kind of cross beams of wood poking out of it, which presumably give it some stability. Apparently, this is a style across the Sahel, which is this kind of region of sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. Which is dry enough, but not not desert. Dry enough to live in, I think. But not, well, not always. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. That that's kind of what drew me to kind of go. Well, I know nothing about Burkina Faso, but this these buildings seem really cool. I did come across a, a few really interesting examples of architecture, including that one that you mentioned. So we'll we'll stick yeah. a few um, images in the show notes, uh, and on our Instagram, there's a plug for that too. For me, I'm looking forward to talking about um, a guy called or who has been who has been compared extensively to Che Guevara, uh, mm. called Africa's Che Guevara, um, a guy who was who was one of the sort of most uh, left-leaning, uh, what we would today probably call progressive leaders um, in African history, probably. So, yeah, I'll, I'll um, be talking about him a little bit later on. So that's your I, I do wonder about that that, that analogy, like, given he, he actually lived for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, yeah. Un, unlike Che. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, if, if, if that, you know, comparison is making listeners feel a bit uneasy for the fate of said left-wing leader, then... You're probably about right. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Aggressive left wing. Uh-oh. Uh, uh, Joe, you're going to tell us about some early history, I think. I am. We owe a great debt of gratitude to a historical dictionary of, uh, of Burkina Faso. Yes, which is one of the only kind of sources that I could find. I'm assuming you're the same. Show that yeah. sort of covered this yeah. period in, in any yeah. detail, not and it's not necessarily extensive detail. So that is um, historical history of Burkina Faso by Daniel Miles McFarland and Lawrence Rupley. So I think it was a an update on a historical dictionary of the Upper Volta mm. uh, published, but that was published in like nineteen ninety eight or something. So you know, there's um, it, it was very useful to get my head around some of the earlier stuff and some of the more obscure terminology. Yeah, and so shout out to that up the top. We're trying to dig through some of the, the archaeology and some of the oral history to get a bit of a sensible narrative on what was going on pre-1400-ish in Burkina Faso. Okay. There have been people in most parts of West Africa from a very early date, including what's now Burkina right. Faso, mm-hmm. obviously. And we talked extensively about that in our Gambia and Liberia episodes, so the same kind of part of the world, generally. From 12,000 to 5,000 BC, there's archaeological evidence of hunter-gatherers um, in within the borders of Burkina Faso, uh, particularly the northwest parts. Uh, there's been chisels and scrapers and various other hunting tools uh, discovered at loads of different sites, so no doubt that there are people doing their thing. From 3600 to 2600 BC, there's evidence of settled farming. So, uh, you know, quite early on again, people are starting to put down roots. Mm. Uh, 1500 to 1000 BC, we get evidence in the archaeology of ceramics, iron and polished stone in evidence. The burial sites that indicate spiritual concerns, the afterlife in, in whatever cultures existed at the time, you know, the burial customs and so on. 
So again, pretty run-of-the-mill humans being humans. Um, some important kind of standout stuff is that in the at least by the 8th century BC, maybe even as far back as the 12th century, there is lots of evidence of iron working. So the Iron Age gets here pretty sharpish. Mm. There's the Darula Furnace site, which is a UNESCO World Heritage site, uh, where there's evidence of, of iron iron furnaces. Um, that's part of, I think the UNESCO Heritage Site has three different places encoded. So that really, really old site, and it's slightly later, uh, smelting and forging yeah. facilities. This is connected to the, the Bora complex of archaeological sites, uh, which is a, a series of related archaeological sites across the lower Niger Valley and parts of southeast Burkina Faso. So I think the River Niger forms one of the borders of Burkina Faso. Uh, seems about right. Parallels the border uh, okay. of modern-day Burkina Faso, mm-hmm. should we say. Uh, so along the lower Niger Valley and parts of southeast Burkina Faso, there's this kind of connected Iron Age culture. Excavations in that complex of archaeological sites have produced clay and iron and stone, distinctive artifacts, uh, terracotta jars used in ritual sacrifices, mm. hooked to arrowheads made of iron, which are apparently quite distinctive. I think that's one of the kind of giveaways that you're excavating something from, from this society. Okay. There are also quartzite beads, brass nose rings, bracelets made from iron and brass, and uh, human remains located beneath terracotta jars, and horse statuettes. So the mostly like horses, clearly the people who were here before them liked horses too. I was, yeah, was going to ask uh, where, like, sort of... Do we have any evidence of where the sort of horse horsiness horse focus culture came from? Yeah, um, no, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we could say anything for certain. Sure, but um, definitely, there's there's horses available to people in the pre-Christian era. It's been around for a while. Yeah. Okay, so a later Bora Asinda culture emerges in like the tenth the, the century, approximately. There's little information about these people since a lot of the excavations have been quite recent, uh, but they would have been a dominant you know, population group in the area in in the first millennium AD. Uh, But an interesting thing I came across, which I think we did encounter in the Gambia as well, is that ironworking was very high status, uh, almost been kind of akin to magical work. So iron blacksmiths were often quite secretive about their their methods and it became sort of a a hereditary job. So within particularly Mande culture, uh, of which there's quite a lot of um, ethnic groups along the northwest um, who are kind of Mande speaking. You can have special castes of blacksmiths or nu- or numus who have have become almost distinct ethnic groups uh-huh. uh, with their own languages persisting into the modern day. Okay. So you have like blacksmith communities, and I, I assume they don't all work as blacksmiths, but um, certainly not today, anyway. But having distinct language for your it was almost paralleled to like um you know some some cultures have a kind of a priestly caste like yeah. the levites and judaism yeah, yeah. who are kind of they marry within the group father to son and like everyone's in that community so ironworking has that kind of role oh, in a cool. lot of west african tribal structures which uh, in addition to things like kings and priests you've got also blacksmiths uh with their own traditions and stuff which is is quite specific and unique. I guess I mean yeah pretty important people so it's an important skill yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah okay so what else is going on so there's remains from Dogon people living in the north have been uncovered in the archaeological history but they had long departed from Ali by about the 1500s so 
there's no written history of them being here. An important site that I, I think, Luke, you've read a bit about as well is the Penny Ruins, mm. which are also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Yeah. So they are the best preserved of 10 fortresses in the Lobi region, dating back to the Trans-Saharan gold trade. So the Lobi region is near the border with Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana and Togo, which I think is the border marked by the Volta River, the Black Volta. Mm. And so, yeah, this is kind of a, a fluxional point between lots of different regions as uh, so lots of trade going on here also, it was on the the gold route through the summer yeah. i think yeah i my interpretation was that it's a sort of strategic location along that trading route so you know and obviously if you're i guess if you're if you're transporting gold you want to be able to keep it um relatively safe you know at waypoints along the along the route so We'll get to it in modern day, where uh, Burkina Faso is still a, a major exporter of gold. So it's it's kind of it's their main thing. Oh yeah, yes. Now, I'm not I'm not clear if uh, Lord of Penny relates to actual gold extraction I'd, or more um, more as Luke's saying that a trade with presumably with Arab traders. Yeah, and, and, and you know, at this point, Islam would have been making more and more headway in Saharan and yeah. and high sub-Saharan Africa, mm. like Mali and the Song Empire would have been going that way. Um, so I assume they would have been involved in this trade, and then it's it's getting mined somewhere. So may, maybe it is being mined here as well. But there's about a hundred stone, the ruins of about a hundred stone enclosures in this in this um, World Heritage site that date back at least a thousand years. So that timeline kind of adds up. It was occupied by either the Loran or the Kulango peoples, uh, some of whom are still around, and they control extraction and transformation of gold in the region. Uh, which reaches apogee in the 14th to 17th centuries. Mm. So we don't really talk too much about those centuries, but uh, apparently that's when gold peaked. That, that's why I had it in there, because I don't really have mm. a lot in, okay. <laughs> in that time. Uh, but one of the interesting things I thought was, I read I read up on this site on the UNESCO uh, World Heritage site, and they put it, just to quote directly from their website, is a much mystery surrounds this site, large parts of which still have to be excavated. The property, which was finally deserted in the 19th century, is expected to yield much more information, which yep. to me is a fancy way of saying uh, we don't really, we haven't really done a lot of it work. Feels here. pretty heritage. So no. that that's a trend that that's yeah. a trend I kept coming across. And the same with, with the with the other ruins I talked about. Like the, there was kind of oh well, there's not much known about this because some of the sites were only recently excavated in like the 70s. Yeah, it's not that recent. Not that recent now. But I don't no. suspect there's a lot of funding for Burkinabe Ark. Archaeology, yeah, pro- it doesn't seem like or it, or much interest from richer countries in investing in, mm. um, which is a pity because it sounds like a very interesting place. Yeah, uh, but yeah, there's only so much we can know without um. They they, they kind of it's quite yeah. far inland and up on a plateau, and I think for a lot of the time the big empires around them didn't really get a foothold and so didn't really keep records of what was going on here. Yep. And that leads to our job being more difficult, mm-hmm. uh, though hopefully a slightly swifter episode than usual. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Laura Penny was uh, finally abandoned in the 19th century completely. So that's it. Uh, so a few other arrivals in the area, so around 700, it's thought that Proto-Mossi uh, people settled in the Dalol Basso area west of Niamey, Niger. So that's about 100 kilometers from the modern Burkina Faso territory, it's kind of just east of the Burkina Faso border. These are presumably the ancestors of the Mosi, but they, they didn't identify that way yet. And over the centuries, they were kind of 
drift towards their current um, their current reign uh, domain. Around the 11th century, the Bobo Fing people move into the bend of the Black Volta. Again, this is kind of the corner of the southwest of Burkina Faso. Uh, there's kind of a, a right-angled border with Ghana, formed by the river. And um, once you move across that, you become Burkinabe, basically. Okay. And uh, in 1076, the Almoravids were conquering ancient Ghana. So that's uh, the, an example of Islamic power coming into the region. So Ghana is, is to the south. There's, I mean, there's a there's a sort of a long history in this in this time of like conflicts with Islam, where they mostly I think sort of define themselves very much against that. You know, like uh, unlike yes. a lot of the tribes around them, they're like, no, yeah. we're, we're we don't we're our own thing. We don't truck with Islam. Thanks very much, and that will be yeah. So so you, you can probably years. see that as as a colonial expansion of its own time yeah. uh, the expansion of islam across west africa but and then christianity would catch up uh, later i don't know if you, you you read about this yourself joe but i i think i read that like a lot of the mosi now these days i think up to 50 percent of them i do identify as islam oh yeah yeah so and i i think the the uh the current Moganaba uh, is Muslim as well, yeah. or maybe the previous one. Yeah. But yes, for uh, you know, in the modern world, um, traditional beliefs are less fashionable. But sure. until the twentieth century, yeah. at least they they uh, held out pretty was, for a pretty long time. So we've 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 mentioned the Mosi already, so we might as well talk about how they got here, um, or at least how they claim they got here. The Mosi people who ended up dominating the central plateau with orderly feudal state structure. Uh, during the medieval period, they're obviously an important um, group, the, the biggest single group. Part of that is that they folded in and kind of mm. married into other groups, so that, that, that helped. But unfortunately and unhelpfully, there's two exceptionally uh, competing timelines of, of the chronology of the Mossy Kingdom okay. prior to French colonization that differ by centuries. Um, so I found that a lot too, yeah. I, I found... Like, you know, a lot of the various bits and pieces I was reading about in my section were like, this historian said this happened in 1400, and this historian said it happened in 1200, which is like yeah. a, a pretty a pretty wide margin. Um, so we're talking, yep. we're talking vagaries here. So the Burkina Bay historian and ethnographer Dim Delobsum, who we probably won't get a chance to talk about, but does have an interesting life in his own right. He was an author and stuff. Uh, he places the start of the Mossy Kingdoms, say it's in the 11th century, uh, Yamba Tiendra Biogo, another uh, local historian, reconstructed their reigns from the oral history and kind of put years on based on how long they're meant to have reigned. Um, but most more recent historians suggest a 15th century origin with the lengths of the rules haven't been exaggerated in the king's lists or maybe people ruling contemporaneously in different places uh, not being added together. But it is fascinating that there is this oral history that's been kept alive by uh, do you remember we encountered griots in um, in the Gambia? Yes, these uh, yes, kind indeed. of uh, yeah. bardic class mm. people who who keep oral histories and sing them. Um, so that that term usually refers to Mande society, but the, in French and in English it's used to describe bards and other African um, cultures. So I think the bend naba is the is a traditional institution in Mossi culture which transmits historical data and in particular the lists of Mogonaba, the, the kind of chief king. And these griots, these kind of bards, they learn off recitations about the history of their people 
and they will either do that in private and under the supervision of colleagues to kind of make sure they got everything right but there's also like regular public declamations of genealogies as part of i think daily worship rituals for them and also major ceremonies uh in in the capital um so it's very important to the Mossi to, to describe their genealogy uh, yeah, the, with drummers. One of the things I read on the Mossi was that like the ancestors almost are, are akin to gods yeah. uh, in their culture. So like you you kind of, one thing that I thought was kind of interesting is you, you in the way that we would swear to God, you know, that mm. X is going to happen, they would swear upon their ancestors as sort of like the ultimate authority. Uh, which yeah. I thought was it was quite interesting, and so it's important to remember them yes, as well, yeah. which is is kind of cool. I wouldn't mind being remembered in a thousand years yeah. in song. That'd be nice. Nah, I can let let it slip. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the legendary origin of the Mosi people is a uh, is Princess Yenenga, who is the daughter of a 12th century uh, king Nadega of Dagbon, which is a modern day Ghana. She was beautiful and a great warrior, and she fought against the Malinkes, and she was such a great for- warrior that her father refused to marry her uh, off, not himself, but refused to let her get married. Okay. So, as a kind of a... She didn't like this, so to show him what's what, she planted a field of wheat and then let it rot, and just kind of pointed at it and went... That's me there? Yeah, That's, okay. that's what you're doing to me, Dad. <laughs> I am a rotting field of wheat. Uh, I want to get married. Okay. He um pr- he locked her up in a castle um because he didn't he didn't agree. You're not uh, wheat. The wheat go. didn't move Lost him. Lost no. mind. You're not wheat. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, she was helped escape by some guards disguised as a man on a on a stallion. Uh, she evaded the Malinke enemies um, and she crossed a river and encountered uh, a lone Mande elephant hunter called Riale. And they fell in love. Once he f- saw through her disguise, obviously. She was disguised as wheat? Uh, You're not wheat. Oh, she was disguised as a man. She was as a man. As man. <laughs> uh, it's a real Milan moment. Uh, it's like I was having confusing feelings. And then uh, <laughs> and then I realized you were in disguise. <laughs> so their partnership is kind of the start of this mostly. Like, uh, this is obviously a legendary story. But... Um, is definitely symbolic of this idea of the Mosi marrying into the local communities. So they have a son called Wodrogo, which means stallion, and that's a common name in Burkina Faso, mm. after the stallion she escaped on. Extremely common, yeah. And they are considered the founders of the Mosi people. Uh, they later patched things up with Grandad, and he gave cavalry to help found the Mosi kingdoms to Wodrogo. That's cool that they have a, a sort of a female or- origin yeah. figure. Which is we'll see. There's a lack of female historical figures yes. in the rest of the episode, but uh, at least in oh, the yeah. legends. Oh yeah, no, I, I'm putting a big flag in that to say, look, hey, <laughs> there's a woman mentioned here at some point in the first. Didn't we do a good you know, job? A few sections. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it is it is a bit unique, you know, the the sort of founding uh, member of the of this culture of being being a woman. Yeah, yeah is, is is quite interesting. Yeah. So they probably did arrive from the Gomba horsemen intermarrying with other groups in Burkina Faso and securing hereditary control of the Central Plateau as a powerful set of states, sometimes called an empire, so that's probably pushing it, that resisted Christianity and Islam, at least wholesale conversion to those. Yep. They would sometimes make 
accommodations. Like, yes, the imam can come and read the Quran to us, but after we've worshipped the ancestors. I, th- I think they would also take in refugees as well at, at points, wouldn't they, from other, other yeah. regions? Yeah. Uh, and wouldn't kind of force them to convert necessarily. You'd just be like, yeah, yes. cool, you can you can come live here. You do you. Yeah. Uh, the structure of Mossi power kind of reflected this, this multi-ethnic background. So they had two kinds of chief, the Naba, which is a political chief who ruled, you know, these were lords from noble families. And they had a pyramid stretching up to the, the Mogonaba in uh, Wagadogo, the capital. He was the, the most important chief. But they also had what were called land chiefs and villages who came from indigenous ethnic groups and who were kind of recognized as being the, the original owners of the land. And they kind of had to be consulted on stuff, even though there was kind of a Maasai ruling class. Hmm. And I thought that was an interesting um, innovation. And I read in um, Ernest Harsh's History of Burkina Faso, another book we relied on quite heavily, he said that the willingness of the central aristocracy to acknowledge local land chiefs contributed to long-term stability of the Mossi political system because it imposed limits on the extraction of revenue from the subjects. As one scholar emphasised, a district chief had to be temperate in his demands upon his villagers. Okay. So, one important king is a guy called Ubri. He was either in 1050 or 1495. Okay. I guess as good as mine. He was the fifth king, uh, the, the Mogonaba, the kind of king of all the world. And his line would be the, the line who ruled from Ugadugu, the modern-day capital. So they're kind of important. And something that dates from his time are the distinctive scars, the cicatrices that the Mossi do to themselves. So two series of three lines cut across the cheek. That dates all the way back to this King Ubri. They still do that today, Joe? Yes, yeah. I think so. Okay. Um, definitely photographs I've seen of Mogonabas, just at least the chiefs do. Great. And the Tensei Festival also dates from this period. So, yeah, a lot of, a lot of their culture goes back pretty far. And you will see the kind of characteristic scarring or tattooing or, or piercings is, is, is a thing in a lot of cultures. If you're trying to make it clear who's part of one group and not part of another group, some kind of external marker seems to be a common mm. trait here. Yeah, so by, you know, the by the kind of beginning of the medieval period... Early Burkina Faso was a mix of kind of centralized states and then more extended um, family-based societies, basically depending on access to capital, soil quality, links to external trade routes, etc. Uh, and some of the groups we would have, like in the West, you have uh, the Senefu, Habe, Lobe and Mande in various parts of the West. You have the Mossi taking up the main plateau, the Pool, who are a Fulani group sort of up in the north all kind of settling in by, by this period. And it might just be worth mentioning, since they resisted Christianity and Islam so long, there's still a lot of use of traditional masks mm. in the region. And I don't have a lot written down on that, but he, you know, the Mossi and the the Bobo and, and the Bois all have extensive mask traditions uh, that you know represent gods or animals and say masks will appear at funerals to make sure funerary rites are observed properly oh. for elders, that kind of thing. Uh, but examples of those masks that are distinctly designed for different cultures, um, you know, if you want to just dabble into it, the Art of Burkina Faso Wikipedia page is a pretty good gallery um, showing some of those. Uh, but I think it's interesting that it's pointed out that because they resisted conversion for so long to, to quote-unquote Western religions, although arguably Middle Eastern religions, much longer than most of the rest of West Africa, a lot of these survived at least long enough to be photographed. Mm. Okay, so 
sort of around the 15th century, as Joe mentioned, in one of the timelines anyway, we have these Gurma and Mosi kingdoms being sort of established in this region. I, I'll talk a little bit about the cultural sort of values of the Mosi. I, I mentioned uh, ancestors there earlier. Ancestors are sort of uh, at the pinnacle of the societal structure, as far as I can tell. They kind of can influence events and life on Earth. They decide upon entry to what's called the pantheon of the ancestors upon death. So if your soul is denied entry by your ancestors, presumably by the way that you've lived your life while you were, you know, here, it will wander around for eternity. So I don't know if there's ghosts necessarily in the mostly mm. culture, but certainly there is a, a kind of a ingress and egress system for the beyond, which is controlled by your your ancestors. So you're you're kind of constantly sort of thinking about how they would be looking down upon the things that you're doing and, and the way that you're living your life. I mean, that, that probably also helps with a sort of a engendering of respect towards the elderly while they're alive as well, because they're mm. like, I'm about to become oh, yeah. really powerful. So, you know, eat yes. your vegetables kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Land is also tied to the ancestors and has sort of a spiritual dimension to it. So like a, a Mosi's life is sort of very much tied to his or her land. Uh, and it's essential for sort of continuing the family's sort of prosperity into the future, as you might imagine. Mm. Uh, I don't know, maybe that's that's related to the point that you were making, Joe, about like kind of having to discuss the use of land with, with the hereditary owners and things like this. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah, I, I do wonder how that relationship works. Like, mm. you, know, you know, the idea in that's emerging in like Australia and Canada of like mm. land acknowledgements. Yeah. You kind of say, we acknowledge that this university is on the ground of whoever... And to me, that feels quite sort of, you're not, you're not going to give them any money. Well, I mean, it kind of depends. I mean, you're you're right. Like, I I have heard a lot of land acknowledgements since I've come here, but particularly working in government as I was for a while, like every, every meeting, even like very low level cursory meetings would begin with a a land acknowledgement of some kind. But I've since started working in the private sector and, uh... That's the last I've heard of any land acknowledgements, yeah. just to... Yeah. <laughs> but it, I, I, I do wonder, is, is is the reverence to the traditional owners of the land sort of for show, or is it actual well, meaningful I, consultation? I mean, not, not, um, not to, like, sidetrack or anything, but I think it's one of these things that, like, you know, in practice, there is an element of for show, but I think the kind of bothering to take the positive act of doing it you know, if if asked, somebody from a if a first nation or, or, or similar, you know, would say, you know, if you want us to do it or not, which would it be? They're probably go, oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> if if it's a yes or no, sure, yeah, yeah, do it. But uh, if there's a checklist of other options, like, uh, but I, but I, yeah, give me the I, land I, back. Then. And I think I think I think that's that's the other thing. Yeah. Like, there, there's other stuff going on, but like in, in isolation, you know, yes or no, eh, probably yeah. yes. It's it's better than yes, literally which is, nothing. Which is the <laughs> long-standing, well-used alternative. Family also is is sort of obviously at a an important uh, sort of cultural uh, construct, like in 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 the Mosi way of life as well, who hold collectivism in very very high regard, and basically individual doesn't really exist, or individualism uh, doesn't really exist. So like your actions and behaviors are always taken as related to your family and and sort of linking back to uh to your family so like like i discussed in terms of the the ancestors looking down on you they're not really looking down on you they're looking down on the family so if you bring shame upon the family then you 
that is reflected among all the rest of your family as well, which I guess is is one way that a, a number of cultures have have kind of um, yeah. I mean, that's it's found it useful to keep people dynamic. in line, I suppose. Yeah, it's like if you're, you know, if you're if your behavior is gonna shame your parents, then they're gonna be re- very strict disciplinarians yeah. in your upbringing, I'd imagine. Which, yeah, is, is not unique uh, in this in this context, but it seems to have been helpful for them to maintain order. Um, and then hierarchy as well, related, is a fundamental concept for the Mosi. And like, you know, the family is kind of organized like a kingdom with the king slash the father at the head of the family and sort of, you know, power flowing down from there. As you mentioned, Joe, the Mosi didn't really write a lot of stuff down. So we're relying a lot on oral history and then people who've come afterwards and written oral histories down <laughs> to to, uh, you know, varying levels of success and accuracy, I suppose. So all the dates in this section are fairly approximate. Just to mention in this section, I'm, I'm relying a little bit on um, the historical dictionary that you mentioned earlier, Joe, as well as Elliot P. Skinner's The Mosi of the Upper Volta. But yeah, several Mosi kingdoms developed in this period. The most powerful of which was Bogodogu, which is uh, located in the center of the country that we now know as Burkina Faso. And that uh, Wogodogu clan defeated numerous attempted invasions by the Songhai and Fulani empires, which border on Burkina Faso, mm-hmm. and yet still managed to maintain sort of valuable uh, commercial and trade links with major uh, Western African trading powers, including the Deula, the Hausa, and the Asante. Um, and yeah, basically, this is sort of a period, the next few hundred years are, are a period of the mostly kind of consolidating their power in this in this area, shoring up their rule within the area that we now know as Burkina Faso. My, my understanding is that the the the, the Mogo Naba, like the, the the great lord of Wagadoga, wasn't over the other top chiefs. No, but he kind of was the de facto most important. One. Yeah, but he there wasn't kind of um, kind of a first among equals. You know, they didn't pay homage to him necessarily. Yeah, They're I think there like, were three or four sim- equally ranked people, but yeah. in practical terms, he had the biggest richest city. So and everybody knew it. <laughs> yeah, you would imagine they traded with with one another. These various mostly kingdoms as well. Yeah, there there were numerous, from what I could tell in the timelines, spats and and civil wars and conflicts between mm. these kingdoms. Frankly, none of which I'm going to get into because yeah, an inheritance is often like cousin based yeah. inheritance for a long time, and that was always messy. Someone dies, and like okay, civil war. Yeah, <laughs> but the most important thing to stress is their command of horseback warfare, which yeah. we we mentioned. They they there's a really cool piece of art. On I think it's the Wikipedia page for the Mosi, which is from 1892, but it's kind of like a wood print. I'll I'll try I'll try and remember to put that in the show notes. But it's it sort of shows these um, these Mosi horsemen all with spears and kind of cloaks and things, looking pretty formidable, like almost like an African version of the Mongols. So yeah. that's that's kind of the wouldn't, vibe. Wouldn't want to meet them in a dark street. You, you definitely wouldn't want to meet the, them, you know, uh, chasing you across the desert or something. The Kingdom of Yatenga, which was one of the northern Mosi kingdoms, became a key power attacking the Songhai Empire, one of the largest African empires in history, which I know we mentioned previously, maybe in our... That's kind of Mali. Yeah. Nah, it was, yeah. yeah. And that was between 1328 and 1477. And the Mosi forces went as far as taking over Timbuktu. Oh, wow. During the reign of Mansa Musa of Mali. And they also sacked the important trading post of uh, Messina, 
it's generally seems to be acknowledged that it was around this time, sort of around 1300, 1400, that the Mosi kingdoms reached their, okay. the height of their power. That was one of the capitals of Islamic culture mm. in, in Africa. Yeah, yeah. But, okay, they're... they're yeah. But again, I, I did I did try and look into that. There's not a lot of information on it. Just, hey, this this happened at some point in this 100-year period. And that's kind of it. It's it's sort of written down somewhere in Islamic histories. Either in 1152 or 1575. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> But it definitely happened, as far as we can tell. Then there was clashes with the Songhai Empire, which was uh, sort of spreading Islam in this region uh, at around this time. And they waged a holy war against the Mosi kingdoms in around 1500. And the Songhai forces were victorious in that war, but they were unable to spread Islam to the Mosi, which sort of retained their traditional religious beliefs, as we discussed earlier. And the Songhai Empire, in its turn, was then defeated about 100 years later by the Moroccans mm. of the Saadi dynasty in 1591. Uh, and that res- resulted in the Mosi kind of reestablishing their don- dominance in this area. But after that period, the influence of the central Wogodogu-based Mosi tribe began to surpass the others more significantly okay. and became more and more imp- influential uh, within the sort of broader Mosi culture from this point. There's also an interesting uh, note in Skinner's book that there were some reports that Europeans had heard about the Mosi exploits from the time of King John II of Portugal, who reigned from 1481 to 1495. Uh, and one historian has stated that the Portuguese ambassadors to Mali and Timbuktu convinced their king that the Mosi were Christians, uh, which obviously they were not. No. And he attempted to enter into relations with them, uh, probably impressed by their sort of conquests into Timbuktu, you would imagine. Well, this was the this was the Prester John myth, mm. wasn't it? That somewhere deep in Africa, there was a secret Christian king. Yes. Who, I don't know what where that arose in the Middle Ages. It was this, this idea that, like, there were lost Christian kingdoms just waiting to be discovered. And, um, and, you and know, there weren't. And there weren't. But maybe yeah. Ethiopia. Maybe. But, um, but uh, yeah, apparently uh, these attempts could have been made to contact the Mosi as late as 1533. Okay. However, as Skinner states in his book, unfortunately, we have no way of knowing whether the Mosi even knew about the existence of the Portuguese. <laughs> That's how little was written bit, down. Bit of shade on the Portuguese. Yeah. Around 1770, we have the Dian and Lobi tribes, which began to settle along the west bank of the Black Volta. Uh, we should actually mention probably that the Volta, there's three Volta rivers uh, in this region, which run through Burkina Faso into, I think, the Volta Lake, which is Lake Volta is in Ghana. There's three sort of tributaries of this Volta River that, that flow through Burkina Faso. And they they sort of have a, a symbolic importance to Burkina Faso as a nation as we go forward. Uh, and there's the black, white and red Voltas. And the name is, is from the Portuguese for like a corner or something. I, I kind of thought for a while we were dealing with very electrical rivers oh, okay whenever i see voltaic from from my scientific training i think of yeah like, you know to do with, with electricity mm. but no it's it's that the rivers are quite sharply bending and that's it i'm sure they have better names in in local languages but anyway in in 1790 the Wilay crossed the black volta into the area near the bogu and uh, in 1800 the beard moved into their, their present kind of hang out along uh, the banks of the Black Volta as well. But generally, yeah, between sort of 1500 and 1800, there isn't a lot to, to be spoken about here. It, it, it seems like, broadly speaking, the, the Mosi were just kind of consolidating their power here, as I've mentioned, uh, and we're awaiting the arrival of Europeans who will write things down and will um, 
you know, attempt to colonize. But yeah, we, the, the mostly are at this point well capable of, of kind of repelling incursions into the territory uh, and, you know, are, are probably quite well placed to to fight off the colonial ambitions of, of the European powers who are going to come knocking fairly soon. For a while, at least. Yeah, for a while, at least. So we'll we'll see how that goes in our next section. Shall we take a quick break? Yes, please. Mark, you're going to tell us about the arrival of of um, some Europeans into this area. What uh, what happened? Who who got there first? Well, uh, the 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 Germans kind of got there first. Um, so the first first Europeans to arrive was Gottlob Adolf Krause. That's a German. Mm. It's it's weird that the Gottlob has aged better than the Adolf, uh, but you know. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, so he was apparently the first European to reach uh, Wogadou, but uh, as luck would have it, a civil war had just one of the many civil wars had just broken out in the mm. um, you know it still I don't think was really a coherent area in and of itself at this point. But within the Mossy kingdoms, I suppose. With, yeah, within within the region exactly. So that that probably mm. probably helped these initial forays of Europeans into the, uh, the area. But really, the French were the ones. Who who really kind of exacted uh, most influence, yeah, even from from early on, and they, uh, they increased their efforts when they kind of saw that oh the Germans are turning up and we got a British are nearby as well, so they um, took a different approach to what the British would do, you know, in terms of you know the British would like to turn everything British. That was that was the vibe. It was you know trains and tea and gin and tonics and so on. But the, the French were really just about squeezing as much money out of the place as possible uh, and uh, extracting people for work in their other in their other you know colonies and areas and so on, um, not to own the people but to use them in an unpleasant way uh, and to use them cheaply as okay. well. Mm, yes, great stuff. Uh, well done, France. Um, anyway, so. Um, as I say, as long as the price was low, France weren't too worried about kind of tr- you know trying to Francify the region. Would, would I be right in saying, uh, Mark, that the French did this taking over of Burkina Faso for piecemeal? Um, yes, and we'll kind of we'll kind of get to that. You know, they they were doing it via you know uh, establishing individual protectorates, um, signing of individual treaties. Again, there wasn't a Burkina Faso to take over, so they were kind of Pick them yeah. off, as you say, kind of one by one. Just a bit of bribery here, a bit of uh, intimidation. Yeah, and, there. and there, were, there were definitely local rivalries that kind of um, helped them leverage their position to kind of gain greater greater influence. Literally, like it's, you know, this person fought this person, this other person ran away, and you're like, why did they run away when those other two were fighting? And Okay, for sure, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it's, it's just, it's, it, it is endless. Um, yeah. There was one I, I thought I'd kind of pull out because it seemed, seemed a bit more interesting and also kind of almost a little bit out of time. 
So it was in May 1894, a conflict between Al-Hajj Al-Kari, who I suspect this may not have been his original name, but uh, he had founded a a state of sorts um, with the aim of spreading Islam. And um, he completed his own pilgrimage to Mecca and returned to the town of Busay in modern-day Burkina Faso and and prepared a jihad against the animist uh, Samo people who were in the region who uh, were not as keen on Islam as he clearly was. So... um, the French got involved and he defeated them, but then the French kind of redoubled their efforts and absolutely smashed his army and his hometown of Busay as well uh, under um, uh, Captain Bonacorsi. But uh, yeah, it was, it was you know, even even then there was this kind of push of Islam into the area and this guy was, was kind of operating on his own. Like he kind of took it upon himself to, you know, it'd be a great idea, uh, kill all my neighbors unless they <laughs> convert to Islam. And you're like, oh, okay, great stuff. Uh, but it was uh, it was still really dynamic. There was still a lot of stuff going on. Um, but the fact that he had, he had initially beaten the French, I think, is why he got uh, he, he got he got mentioned uh, in the history books. Um, the year after eighteen ninety five, uh, Emile Chotin, the French minister of the colonies, ordered protectorates to be established over local groups, including the Mossi, the Lobi, and the Gouronsi. Um and orders came from French Sudan, aka Mali, to us uh, to collect treaties from local groups. Uh, Yatenga Nababuli um, was one of the was one of the local leaders, and he was forced from his kind of regional city of Owahiguya. And he, you know, he reaches out to the French. Is there any any chance you guys could could help me out here? And uh, any chance of some guns? Yeah, <laughs> and you know, it's just another example of one of the ways that the French were able to kind of just tighten their grip on the region. Um, as the years cycle on, France slowly consolidates power, and um, slight silverish lining of colonialism and the rest is that they banned domestic slavery in 1901. But then again, okay. You know, Obviously, a lot of other bad stuff happened that wasn't slavery that the French did. And also, 1903, we have local rulers in French West Africa being authorized to collect taxes. Uh, and, you know, to do so on commission. So mm-hmm. they're enriching themselves, but they're also enriching the French government. There was a rebellion against said taxes in 1906. And in 1908, a famine struck, which
resolute uh, resistance mm. in the Muslim areas. But kind of the, the key thing that is continually cited is the fact that they were going to take all their men away to be shot, uh, which is where we're, where we're headed, as I say. Uh, and so a lot of uh, what I have here comes from, um, uh, it was a book, Understanding Colonial Violence, Military Culture, Colonial Context, and the Civilizing Mission in the Voltabani War, 1915-1916. So due to the pressures of World War I, uh, and influenced by this book from 1910 by a French general uh, which was called La Force Noire, and you can get what that's about. Um, mm. France was considering conscription uh, in some of their African territories. And actually, the, the whole idea of registering those those uh, people in 1912 came from that book as well. Obviously, this did not go down extremely well. And in 1915, fighting broke out, uh, resistance to the conscription boiled over, and there were several instances where the French forces, again, were beaten by local fighters. Um, now, they were they were beaten, but the casualties on the um, uh, on, on the Birkenabia side were were enormous. But you know, right. I guess maybe they kind of reduced that bit in the telling to 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 people uh, locally because they they use it as a huge kind of recruitment tool. It spun out of control, frankly. So the conflict was situated in modern day Burkina Faso, but also Mali. The French were predictably brutal and attempted to crush resistance. It was in part because there was also the whole thing of slavery was still very recent. So it, it kind of, there wasn't a lot of tolerance for, oh yeah, it could be a good idea to go and fight for France. There was, there wasn't really, that wasn't really uh, front of mind for, for all of these guys. Yeah, we don't, we don't really trust yeah, exactly. these, uh, these white guys. And also, as I said, like there, there had already been a couple of, couple of issues, you know, shipping taxes out um, and, you know, famines and so on. So, um mm. Uh, is the Aunt de Genard in, in place at this p- point? The you know that French thing that they did everywhere, of like, and we can conscript everyone for free labor in indigenous countries. Um, uh, yes, I, it definitely I think, turns up later, but I'm not sure is it in place yet. I think that's kind of what I was talking about in terms of kind of you know why their interest was in the general region. So pr- probably already in place, I would say. Yeah, that, that just meant that the French could basically activate a workforce to build bridges, roads, rail lines, schools, churches, post offices, the only infrastructure they reckoned a civilized country needed. Right. They were just forcing the local people to do uh, for maybe very little pay. I'm not even sure any pay it was just kind of that was your tax was you you paid your tax I, in labor. I, think, I think in the context of Burkina Faso I don't think they were intending to build a lot of that infrastructure it was really maybe we're going to ship you out to get to do some of this some turns up and a lot of it was growing cotton as well like at the expense right. of your own subsistence farming you would have to grow and work cotton fields which isn't a good image so the, the French confiscated livestock, these torture, some executions, and just generally burning buildings and villages to the ground to, you know, make the reasoned point as to why it was such a great idea for them to go off and fight in Belgium. Um, then, you know, it, it, was, it was clearly a, a bunny day. Once the French had been properly reinforced, um, which they needed to be because of, of, of their defeats, they dialed up the violence to the point that even there was there was some kind of minor mutinies and refusal to carry out orders on the French troops because what they were doing was pretty pretty bloody. So they were massacring women and children with machine guns for some reason that hadn't they hadn't decided to shift those machine guns to World War One. Let's send them to Burkina Faso so we'll so we can shoot some women and children. Um, 
On the 11th of March, 1916, they fired artillery from a commanding height at the retreating civilians at the village of Pasacongo. In the bombardment of the village of Boho alone, they killed approximately 2,000 men, women, and children. Um, and apparently, you know, part of the idea as to why they were so brutal was that they, they felt that if they allowed people to flee or retreat, they would just come back and, and fight us again. So let's kill as many as possible while they retreat was the plan. Très gentil. Uh, anyway. Okay. Yeah. Um, so a uh, quote from, from the book I mentioned. In in the case of the Voltabani War, one obstacle was water. Access to drinking water was difficult in the region, exacerbated by the fact that the revolts had started during the dry season. Equally, most of the water wells were found inside the fortified villages. If the column was running out of water, it had to deal with the local populations to procure it by any means necessary. For example... The secondary column, led by Sous-Lieutenant Breton, ran out of water when it was heading back to Dedogu. Breton wrote how he was obliged to attack the village of Tour to procure water. Lack of water or fears of having it in sufficient amounts most likely prompted swift and decisive action against enemy villages. So, essentially, they were wandering around, thirsty as the dickens, picking fights with everybody because they didn't have any water. So that, that was... It meant they were never not in conflict. They were just going around fighting everybody as a result. But I'll go with this last quote here. During the entire conflict, it is estimated that up to 130,000 men fought the French on a territory of a population of around 1 million uh, individuals. Oh, wow. The death toll was around 30,000 for the anti-colonial coalition, with the proportion of civilian casualties being undetermined. French authorities and their allies lost, at most, a few hundred men. So, yeah. I mean... That's not losses that... Like these people can sustain. No, you know it's uh, just ten percent of the population fighting. Yeah, over. Yeah, maybe not ten percent, but pushing towards ten percent, maybe in in terms of overall casualties. Uh, anyway, uh, basically massively impactful, but um, it it did. You know, it started off with some local victories, but uh, ultimately the the French just kept killing. And uh, yeah, uh, that's 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 me for a little bit. Okay. Wonderful. All right. Joe, you're going to tell us sort of how the, the French kind of uh, turned the screw even more, I, I think. I'm, I'm going to more talk about um, different configurations of how the French ruled the place, okay. ultimately getting towards self-government okay. over the course of the rest of the 20th century. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think the, the Voltabani War was pretty decisive and yeah. I don't think anything of that scale really occurred again during the remain like resistance to French rule became quite muted. I mean I, I imagine they didn't have the the troops to to resist to that extent ever again, I would imagine. Well actually just just I don't know if, if we if you're gonna talk about it, Joe, but like towards the end of the war, it was very late in the war, they were implementing their conscription plans. So, you know, all, this war was fought, they killed loads of people and they finally got what they wanted. Okay, we're finally going to recruit you and conscript you and ship you off. And then World War I ended. And uh, they kind of never mm. really got to implement it uh, as, as, as much as they had intended. Oh, right. No, I, I picked up directly after the war. So Grant, I, I hadn't yeah. really looked into that. In some respects, they were saved from having to go to World War One. So, I mean, they, 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 they died in their feet. Um, I mean, would you rather die in your, in your home country or in the trenches in Belgium? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. So the area we now call Burkina Faso was, was first attached to the Upper Senegal Niger colony. 
um, which is now more or less Mali. It was then organized into a, a separate colony called the, the French Upper Volta, or just the Upper Volta, or Haute Volta, in 1919. So this is referring to the river, as, as we've said, mm. the various branches of the Volta River. It's, it's weird that they had Upper Volta, but never Lower Volta. Well, I suppose Lower Volta is, is Ghana. Yeah, and I guess, but that, it was never it was never termed that. Well, Ghana was called what the Gold Coast, was it? Or yeah, I forget which. I always mix up my coasts. None of them are great. Let's 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 move on. So yeah, no, there's some, some interesting stuff I came across again, mostly from Ernest Harsh's book about how the French were ruling uh, Burkina Faso. So um, an administrator called Andrew de Bomini, based in Ouagadougou. Uh, had, had this to say. He said, Not without reason, we'd followed the rule of regarding the great black chiefs as exploiters of their people. And this caused us to introduce uh, and to maintain a policy aimed at reducing their authority. So that was the original plan. Was they okay. went, you know, these these guys are doing domestic slavery there, you know. We don't wanna we wanna civilize this place um with our own French structures. But eventually they had to confront the reality that bypassing chiefs was not always possible. You know, they're very uh, firmly entrenched social structures, uh, again, particularly in the Mossy kingdoms that had existed for five to nine hundred years, uh, depending on your your history. Yeah. Mm. Also, there were very few educated Africans to serve the state, you know, uh, educated in, in French and in uh, colonial matters. So, you know, at this point, uh, that wouldn't be true later, but at, at the early points of colonization. It's probably also worth remembering that a, bu- a bunch of people had just been killed so you know even even fewer yeah and there were all these various levels or circles cantons municipalities working your way down that the french were trying to kind of impose on a, an african society and the number of french of french administrators was tiny there was only about 50 people from metropole uh, in 1929 trying to run all of Burkina Faso. Uh, on behalf of France. Jeez. Uh, so each head of a subdivision was theoretically responsible for 400 to 450,000 people. As one French official commented, we occupy the country, but we don't administer it. Okay. <laughs> uh, which seems we want all of the glory and none of the responsibility. Yeah. So what eventually happened was a kind of a re-elevation of the, the Moganaba and his various vassals, the, 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 the Mossy kings and chiefs, and de Bomini again, this, this, this uh, administrator, said, the rulers are now helping us to restore, on a newer and sounder basis, a political edifice which had once appeared to be on the point of collapse. So they were folded into <laughs> the colonial structure with lots of uh, goodies made available to them uh, in return for ruling their people oh. on behalf of the French. Well, it, it, um, it sounds like the, the structures that were, were kind of uh, sliding into poop were doing so on the basis of the french aggression and interference we are saving you yep. from us we're getting the gang yeah. back together which is you the rulers you should be grateful are you excited yeah <laughs> um so this co-option of african authority was most effective in the former mossy kingdoms obviously with clear and long-standing hierarchies was less effective in other communities so among the more decentralized people the more decentralized end of the spectrum where a number of uh, kind of ethnic groups straddle the borders of present-day Burkina Faso and Ghana, and those would be like the Lobi, the Dagara, the Birafor, and the Ule. They didn't have chiefs, and that's kind of something they're, they've been quite proud of. 
so therefore there was no defined territorial organisation. Uh, so you might have elders who kind of have precedence in making decisions, but nobody was a king. So the, the French just kind of grouped random villages together as cantons and appointed an outsider as a chief. Oh, that's colonial bingo right that's there. That's going to go down well. They'd get a jeweler merchant to be the chief of a lobby canton. This uh, border that we're drawing on this map, it's a bit wiggly, isn't it? Can we get a straight line, maybe? <laughs> <sighs> straight lines are so much easier to administer. Mm. And he also quoted um, that a, a Garancy peasant is always ready to ask his chief, who made you king? Um, about these sort of interloper kings. Mm. So um, a mixed bag. Some chiefs took advantage of his power, shockingly. Various community checks and balances that had existed before everything was squished uh, didn't come back, weirdly. Yeah. So um, there was lots of diverting funds, judicial corruption. And my favourite one was uh, you got a cut of taxes based on how many people were in your area. So just kind of saying, oh yeah, I've got a... 500,000 subjects. Right. Do you? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had mentioned it in the Jena here, but we, we've talked about that already. So the kind of forced labor, again, made any sort of African colonial administrators fairly unpopular with their fellows. If you mm. were administering this, yeah. you know, the structures of forced labor that were making everyone poor and hungry, um, you weren't really seen as an ally. Understandably so. Yeah. I also found just an, an isolated comment that the African population was heavily discriminated against the French governance, which I, I accept was probably likely. But the examples given were that African children were not permitted to, to ride bikes or to pick fruit off trees. These were privileges reserved for the children of colonists. And it just Jesus. seems hard to imagine how... How you police that yeah, and also... Yeah. So again, I only saw that in one place, so I, I don't know how yeah. true that is. But if you if you if you you know your family has lived here their whole lives, and you're like uh, suddenly these outsiders come in and say you're not allowed to pick the fruit off the trees. But also, how do you do farming? Like I, I just I, I, yeah, I don't yeah. I don't know. Um, they seem weird priorities. Maybe unless unless you're specifically instructed to do so. Yeah, then. there was a lobby rebellion in the 30s, so that ended up under direct military control along with a few other regions. Uh, but no mossy area ever went into direct revolt. However, you did have sort of people just moving out of Wugadugu into villages of, like, Fulani villages and stuff in order to escape taxation. Uh, sort of going, we're not mossy, what are you saying? Mm. In 1932, uh, Upper Volta was deconstituted and partitioned between its neighbours. So that was uh, a bit of a shock. Bits of it were carved off into, a lot, a lot of it into Cote d'Ivoire. Some of it into the colony of Niger and some into French Sudan, which is, as you said, Mali. Uh, Paris essentially viewed it as an economic backwater yeah. with the only useful ex uh, resource for extraction being labor. Oh. However, having a separate colony made it difficult to extract the labor because you have to like move people to another colony. Yeah. And that required paperwork. So by annexing, for instance, uh, uh, Wagaguya to Mali or Wugadugu to Cote d'Ivoire. This was much more straightforward. But this is a major affront to the Mossi, as it made them subservient to distant colonial capitals. Yeah. And more importantly, it dismembered the old Mossi kingdoms. So some of them were part of Mali, some of them were part of Cote d'Ivoire. They were no longer one thing. Yeah. So as much as there had been an empire, it was now partitioned. And this, this was a bit of a culture shock. You can imagine, yeah. However, the chiefs did continue to collect their French taxes in the hopes that their loyalty to the colonists would be rewarded. 
Oh, yeah. That's always a vain hope, I think. <laughs> the Mogonabo, the, the, the top chief, fortuitously backed the goals free French government. So uh, that was clever of him. And the chiefs were basically politically focused on reattaining their separateness, like getting back to being their own colony. Mm. So this is uh, the thing I, I, I hinted at the beginning. You might not really think of it in these terms, but ancient feudal chiefs are sort of politically conservative by, by instinct, even if that is um, within a colonial structure. Okay. You know, they want to make sure they stay the nobility within their society, whatever yeah. the external factors are. They're pretty happy with the status quo. Um, like. So one feature of this was in 1945 when the... Uh, Rassemblement Démocratique Africain, which I'm going to call the RDA from now on, which is a kind of a uh, an African nationalist political party. The RDA's leader, uh, Félix Oufé Boigny, who I think was later president of Côte d'Ivoire, he approached the Moranaba for like backing in his attempt to go to the the French Constituent Assembly, and um, the chief said no. He spurned him because he was too communist. Right. He was very scared about this communism thing. This working class rising up business and seizing the Gauls right. really gotten gotten to him yeah uh, so Umfue Boigny won anyway and played a key role in helping draft some of the changes in colonial policy that would impact West Africa and Central Africa over the coming decades in 1947 after World War II Old Provolta was indeed re-established anyway uh, as part of the French Union and overseas territory with its own assembly and its own original boundaries, so the, the chiefs got what they wanted. Okay. Maybe their loyalty was rewarded, actually. In the well, end. some sources claim their loyalty was rewarded. Okay. Others claim that the French, uh, well, Paris, saw value to um, a nice conservative colony that would shore up those structures. Oh, okay. While Côte d'Ivoire was becoming radically nationalist. Right. Okay. So uh, by carving off a bit of Côte d'Ivoire that would play ball... You yeah. kind of weakened the RDA. So basically, you, you, you guys are subservient to us, and therefore you can have your own yeah. sort of assembly and colony. and Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I think yeah. the RDA okay. were popular in, in what is now Western Burkina Faso as well. So you kind of took a, a chunk of RDA support out of Cote d'Ivoire. Right. But they were small enough within Burkina Faso that they had no real impact. Yeah. So there was a very restrictive franchise, which meant a party set up by the chiefs. They did have to run in elections, which was a bit, you know. But uh, they, they easily won because only about 5% of people could vote. And the RDA had no hope in the early days. There was lots of electoral fraud, bribery, violence at voting stations, you know, usual stuff. Lovely stuff. I, I can't imagine, like, a, a, a Moko Naba having to... <laughs> To appeal to voters, you know, to be like, vote for me. I am your me. chief. I'm already the chief, but you need to yeah. vote for me to confirm that yeah. I have been chosen by God. Now I need yeah. to be chosen by you. Yeah. <laughs> so, as the years went by, however, it seems the RDA proved less scary than initially feared, uh, and less commie than initially feared. And so the French were able to work with them, and so too were the chiefs. And some common ground was found between some Mossy chiefs and the educated elite of other ethnic groups. Uh, and you got a new party called the Parti Démocratique Unifié, the Unified Democratic Party, which was kind of the RDA plus some others. And they were kind of a broad coalition that came together in 56 and 57. In 57, the Assembly received the right to elect an executive council of government for the territory. And by the end of 58, this would be transformed into an autonomous republic within the French community. So a guy I'd like to mention here is Daniel Ouezin... Koulibaly, 
who was known as the Lion of the RDA. He'd had a long career in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, which had included his part of uh, Burkina Faso. So he was a Bobo uh, and had converted to Catholicism. Okay. Um, so he had a long role in that regard, uh, got to prison a few times, been involved in lots of demonstrations. Um, so he becomes a leader in the late 50s, and he was concerned with economic development of the Upper Volta, establishing a political system led by educated functionaries and professionals of all ethnic groups. And so in that sense, he could be considered the first prominent Voltaic nationalist. So kind of not my tribe first, but us lot versus mm. others. And he was uh, one of his cabinet's first acts was to go and visit the Mogan uh, Naba to sort of establish good relations with traditional power mm. structures. Uh, however, he died soon afterwards from an illness. He went to Paris for medical treatment and uh, didn't come back. So he was the first president of the, the governing council, but he died. His wife, Celestine, uh, was an interesting figure in that she was the, the Minister for Social Affairs, Housing and Labour in the government uh, after his death. Uh, would be the first female minister in West Africa. But um, it was a long time before there was a second. Okay. It was kind of an early, bright start, followed by uh, not much follow-through. Uh, de Gaulle was busy reshuffling Africa over this period, as we talked about in Gabon and in the Gambia. We've kind of come across this a few times. These 1958 referenda about the future relationship with France, where they could either be a part of the French community or immediately independent and completely cut off with no help from France in restructuring. So only Guinea chose the latter. Everyone else uh, basically supported this French community idea, which is kind of, you could be independent, but still dependent. Uh, only the radical parties, the uh, Mouvement de Liberation Nationale and the Parti Africain de l'Independence uh, called for a yes. So 91% of people voted for French community. Okay. They took a while to pick Koulibaly's successor, and there was an interesting attempted coup in that period where um, the Moganaba Kugri had just ascended the throne. His father had also died that year. So this new 27-year-old um, chief, t- top mm. chief, made a ham-fisted attempt kind of power play on behalf of a traditional power. He basically sought to influence the selection of a successor by um, when the, they were meeting to pick a new I think he was called a vice president at the time, but he was essentially the, the head of government. Okay. Uh, he basically was lobbying for a government of union and public safety under a constitutional monarchy. Clever boy. Uh, but the legislators refused to comply and rescheduled their meeting. The Mossy aristocracy brought 3,000 warriors as a show of force. And I did see somewhere there was a French colonel who was kind of giving them a thumbs up on this. But eventually... Uh, more serious French military figures um, threatened to get involved if they didn't disperse. And basically this just backfired and increased anti-chief sentiment and paved the way for um, Maurice Yameogo, who I think Luke is going to talk about. A little bit, yeah. For Yameogo to be confirmed as head of government. He was a mossy commoner with a solid political base in Kodogo and was well-placed to take advantage of the Mogonaba's blunder. He was an interesting character. He, he was not a radical, so he was kind of against nationalism and like set the police to harassing and buying off the two parties who had backed independence. Well, I think I think there's going to be, and I, I don't know how much I'll 
be able to talk about in my section because there's a lot packed into my next section. But yeah. my impression of the next few decades of upper Volta's history is that you kind of have these swings between people who are pro-France and then occasionally people who are anti-France as well. Yeah. And you can, that sort of tends to define the sort of leadership style of each of these people who will subsequently yes. come into power. That's the number one thing that defines you as a leader is, are you subservient to, to the French government or not? Or are you against it? Yeah. Um, and yeah, we all go so, with definitely uh, wee wee. Uh, yes. France yeah. is good. Yes. Um, he was a former colonial administrator and functionary, so he, he, he was bought in. Yeah. And so he was against independence until de Gaulle announced in 59 that there was a pathway to independence with continued French support. And he, he started uh, upping his rhetoric of how great sovereignty was and yes. how wonderful national sovereignty would be, having just suppressed all of the parties that were against. <laughs> On the eve of, uh, of independence, various other parties approached him about, how about a government of national unity while we get the country set up? And uh, in response to that, he had them arrested. All oh, of them, geez. yeah. <laughs> well, one guy fled abroad, a guy called Nazi Bonny whose first name is unfortunately spelled. Yeah. Uh, he is a was a Bois author. I think he wrote quite a bit about the um, Bani Volta War. And he basically fled to Dakar and lived there for a lot of the rest of his life. But actual nationalists basically hated him. There was a quote here from Amadou Diko, uh, a leader of a different party. Throughout the era of the Andesinat and forced labour, the African functionary, symbolised by the clerk, the interpreter, the canton guard, was the occupier's most zealous auxiliary. And now he, whose gods always were, the commandant, the governor, the governor-general, sees the possibility that his wildest dreams may be answered, that he has a chance to take their place and become at the same time rich and esteemed. Mm. So real, you can Bitterness. smell the disdain dripping yeah. off that. Kind of, this guy wants to be an independent nation. Yeah. <laughs> Only when he's in charge. And when independence was proclaimed on August 5th, 1960, the new constitution provided for an executive president elected by universal adult suffrage for a five-year term and an elected legislative assembly. So it all sounds good. What could go wrong? We wrap it up there. Oh, yeah. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with sort of post-independence into the modern day, I think. So, uh, quickly touch on the flag. Upper Volta uh, is, is established as an independent nation. The flag adopted in 1960 relates to the three rivers, uh, the Black, White and Red Volta. And uh, it's oh, the exact same flag. flag. As, it's, the, it's the German <laughs> Empire flag. Unfortunately, huh. it's, it's horizontal stripes, Black, White and Red. So yeah, unfortunately, the same flag as as the German Empire. Um, maybe that's why they didn't want to fight in World War One. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> My section is going to be dominated by, as we've mentioned up the top, coups and various new constitutions and a pattern of like, as we've already established, uh, the, the 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 leader arresting and imprisoning people who who oppose them as soon as they get into power. Yeah. Soon after he came into power, Yemogo banned all political parties other than his own. Classic. Yeah. But just six years in, due to severe unrest over his program of austerity, uh, he's toppled in the first of a series of uh, bloodless military coups 
led by a guy called Lieutenant Colonel Sangule Lamizana. The constitution was suspended, he dissolved the National Assembly, and he was placed as the head of a government of senior army officers, and he took the position of both president and prime minister. But that, that, that was a reasonably popular coup, wasn't it? Like I think I think so, yeah. I think Yamayoga had like cut everyone's wages by 20%, including the army. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it kind of played out as you'd expect. Yeah. But and then he uh, proposes a uh, kind of provisional military government until a new constitution, which was ratified on the 14th of June, 1970, provided for a four-year transition to fully civilian elected leadership. Did that ever He, he didn't have good relations with the Mosi, uh, which, you know, is, is something that you you'd want, yeah. probably need in a position of power in, in Burkina Faso, yeah, or what will become Burkina Faso. Uh, in 1970, that new constitution is approved, uh, and he himself, uh, Lamizana, remains in power until 1975, uh, when he was due to be replaced by an elected president, Gerard Woodrago, who was appointed as prime minister. However, just a couple of years later, after sharing power, uh, Lamizana decides he isn't liking this power-sharing thing, and he pushes the prime minister out. Uh, once again, dissolving parliament. Nice. In the midst of all this, we have the Sahel drought, which is one of the most severe ever. Uh, killed up to 100,000 people and around a third of all livestock in West Africa. And uh, Lamizana's regime visited US President Nixon in October of 73 uh, as a representative of his own country, as well as other Sahel governments, and requested US aid. Uh, but I don't know exactly how that played out. I'm sure aid was sent but that's that's one of his his big achievements is that he was he was representing kind of uh, governments around the region as well. The, the whole Sahel. Yeah, yeah basically. Yeah, he writes another new constitution in 1977, and he was re-elected in open elections in 1978. Uh, and this election was surprisingly is generally considered to be one of one of the most democratic ever held in West Africa. Oh, wow. the one where the former military dictator wins. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's another amazing. another term in office. Uh, so he dominated the country's politics until November 1980, when a series of strikes uh, launched by workers, teachers, and civil servants led to another coup, uh, this time headed by a guy called Colonel Sei Zerbo. Uh, and he maintained that Lamizana had allowed for a corruption, that his government had, had become soft, and that the country needed a steady hand. Um, many people wouldn't like the steady hand that they got. Mm, <laughs> um, okay. All hail Zerbo. Yeah, but it seems like a very common theme of these coups is that they're all preceded by strikes. Yes. Uh, yes. The labor movement in in Upper Volta or what will become Burkina Faso seems to be extremely strong. There seems to be kind of a, a, a very keen appetite for strikes when, when the government is not going or not uh, not satisfying people, uh, I suppose. Oh, some not. student protests as well. Mm. Yeah. Well, given how young the population is, that's... Yeah. That's... Half the population of students. I guess so. That's a, definitely a, a theme of uh, that, that that book by Ernest Hirsch. Uh, yeah. I forget what was the subtitle of it. Power, Protest and Revolution? A History of Power, Protest and Revolution. Yes. It definitely is a theme of some of the later chapters. It's sort of this idea of like, he even has tables of like different sectors having mm. having protests in various years. Um, you've got like farmer strikes, you've got general strikes, you've got... Uh, Teacher strikes... Like, yeah, weirdly organized so for for yeah. a not heavily organized states, very organized labor movements, like sectors. Yeah, mm. yeah, and that for sure. brings about change better than electoral politics seems to. It does. It does. Yeah. So Zerbo detained the former president, uh, as has become tradition by this point, 
uh, and many other officials. He scrapped the constitution, also traditional by this point, dissolved the National Assembly, of course, suspended political parties and prohibited all political activities. Many of his ministers were young, radical army officers, among them a guy called Thomas Sankara, is a guy you want to remember, yeah. and another guy called Blaise Campoire. Uh, another name you want to you want to remember, yeah, yeah. Right, so Zerbo was the the OG. Uh... Yeah, he was he was kind of the the originator of some of these people that will come to dominate the sort of modern history of of Burkina Faso. This is yet another bloodless coup, uh, another one prompted by widespread civil unrest and strikes. And among the parts of the society that su- supported Zerbo's coup were uh, the Mosi people and the Catholics, two groups who had been signed sidelined by Lamizana. Although Zerbo, like his predecessor, was a Bissa Muslim. Hmm. Thomas Sankara is appointed Minister for Information, and he allows state media to report on corruption and embezzlement, which they had rarely been permitted to do uh, under Zerbo's predecessors. And there was a lot of it. (laughs) Zerbo attempted to crack down on corruption by suspending the right to strike, uh, which he claimed was a luxury in an impoverished nation. (laughs) The largest and most powerful unions continued to organize strikes anyway, and the nation became polarized between the government and the unions. Harsh's book, I'm just going to quote briefly from, says the absence of palatable choice among the dominant big men, combined with an erosion of overall uh, economic and social conditions, made wide sectors of society receptive to radical proposals and set the stage for the emergence of new political actors. Uh, just foreshadowing what's what's going to come up, come up here. In mid-1982, Information Minister Captain Thomas Sankara re- resigns his position criticizing Zerbo's leadership and government and says, woe to those who would gag their people. So clearly he wasn't as keen as uh, Thomas Ankara on, on uh, free press. Yeah, I was going to say that the, the government policies of, um, you know, free press and repression of the right to strike don't don't usually go together. No, So he no. did seem to be having different, um, different priorities to his boss. Yeah. Shortly thereafter, there's another coup led by the army, which brings to power Major Dr. Jean-Baptiste Wadrago. What is a major doctor? Is, is that another Wadrago? Yes. They weren't, they weren't lying. This this was the, the stallion name. Yeah. That, uh, if, you, if, you, if you go to the list, there's a Wikipedia list of the most famous people from Burkina Faso, and about 50% of them are named Wadrago. Okay, so, so I wasn't lying earlier when I said this is a popular name. Uh, it's very popular, <laughs> yes, as far as I can tell anyway. He appoints Sankara as prime minister in oh. January 1983, but Sankara is dismissed within just a few months uh, for pushing for an overly progressive uh, regime and is soon placed under house arrest by Wadrago's government. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Sankara is a very popular public figure, especially with the younger army officer class, this doesn't go down well. And his friend and ally, uh, Blaise Campoare, organizes what becomes known as the August Revolution in 1983. Uh, which brings Sankara back to power. He imprisons Wadrago, and uh, we have what I will call our Mr. Burkina Faso, uh, is Thomas Sankara. Yeah. Um, I, I, I saw a little bit about Dr. Wadrago. It seems he... Major doctor. Major doctor. Kind of <laughs> went back to a reasonably normal life later. Like, he was allowed to just go back to being a doctor. Being a major I doctor. I think so, yeah. And I think he's been called out of retirement a few times to kind of uh, mediate some of the later disputes. Okay, interesting. Um, like, I think I think he was reasonably well thought of, uh, okay. rather than like some of the more murderous uh, military yeah. dictators. Um, he's kind of like, we need someone to ha- get this person, this person to talk. Remember that doctor? Yeah, <laughs> major, major doctor. doctor Joe. Major doctor. <laughs> Very big doctor. <laughs> yeah, only doctors big stuff. So 
Thomas Sankara is the guy that I spoke about at the top. Uh, yeah. he's, he's very often compared to Che Guevara. Apparently, they both loved motorcycles. Um, and oh, okay. uh, he had been an army officer in the Upper Volta Army and had traveled to Madagascar as a young man to study at their military academy, but arrived to find the place in uh, in kind of unrest and turmoil, uh, struggling to free each- free itself from French control. It's not somewhere I think of as a kind of a ideal military academy. Not really, no. But I guess when you're coming from Upper Volta, may- yeah. maybe, maybe it's a step up. I, I don't know. Ethnically, he was half Mosi and half Fulani. That's handy. And he was inspired by uh, kind of protest leaders and read up on socialism, read a lot of Marx, I believe, and returned to Upper Volta in 1973 with a lot of very leftist ideas. Once he comes to power, he's he's, he's quite a, a sort of left-leaning progressive uh, president. So first up, he renames the country with the aim to bring more pride to the Burkinabe. Uh, and to distance his country from the colonial past, he really doesn't like the French. We go from Upper Volta to Burkina Faso, uh, which means land of the upright people. And I, I think that's a um, that's a combination of two different languages. Yeah, it's cobbled together from from two languages, so it doesn't really mean anything. But it doesn't really mean anything. But it, I guess it kind of gives a sense of national unity because maybe that's what he was striving for anyway, is to try to make the name sort of more inclusive. So rather than take you know yeah. the name from one language group. He's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a sort of a cobbled together version. Burkina's from a, a Mossi word, and mm. Faso comes from the Jula language. Okay, uh, so upright and upright, fatherland, upright fatherland, or yeah, land of the upright people is how it's typically translated. And I think Burkinabe is the, like the, the that kind of ending comes from a third language, right? It comes from the Fula language. Yeah, we, we've we've mentioned it a few times, but that's that's kind of how. That's sort of the national the adjective. identity. Yeah, the adjective yeah. of... Yeah, of, so that, that kind of suffix on the end is from Fula. So they're kind of yeah. trying to balance everyone. Yeah. Nice. Uh, I've got a quick clip of uh, Sankara talking here, which is from the African Roots podcast from DW. So we'll just hear a brief clip of him talking here. The slave who deludes himself that his suspiciously condescending master will set him free, is responsible for his misfortune. Only the struggle liberates. I could do a huge amount on this guy, but we don't really have the time. Uh, But it's worth mentioning that a lot of his policies are still looked upon today as some of the most progressive in the history of Africa. And it's, again, worth emphasizing this was in 1983. He invests massively in literacy and increases the rights for women, he uh, outright bans female genital mutilation and forced marriage. He boosts uh, environmental protections uh, and literally takes land from the rich and gives it to the poor. He wrote the national anthem. I believe he pay- played in a jazz band, uh, was a guitarist. Yeah, he was a jazz guitarist. Yeah. So he wrote very the national cool. anthem and he also designed the flag. With the good flag? We can maybe insert a very quick clip of the, um, of the um, national anthem here. say i don't think the anthem is very good this probably is not it's not great it's uh and the can can i can i read you from a probably not a great translation but like it's it's a little 
heavy-handed. Okay. You know, it, it, it doesn't have much poetry to it. Um, it's like, against the humiliating bondage of a thousand years, rapacity came from afar to subjugate them for a hundred years. Against the cynical malice in the shape of neo-colonialism and its petty local servants. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, okay. Thank you for your essay. You, you get an A. Like, uh, are, are, are you... <laughs> Have you been reading Marx at all? Interesting. I don't really know who the thousand years refers to. Like, is that like the working class versus the chiefs, or because the French really were just there for a century? Like, they, I don't they... think he was really a, fl- a fan of the. Despite being half Muslim himself, I don't think he was a fan of the the sort of tribal system he saw. Well, it that's as fair. A... Any any more than English people love dukes. You know? Yeah. So he English people do love dukes, yeah. Not all of them. Not communists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's only like a handful of them. They love barons and viscounts and all that nonsense. There, is, there is a kind of a le patrie ou l'amour kind of bit, which is more fun. But the, it just seems a bit like uh, if you put neo-colonialism in your in your anthem, it's not really a ditty. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. calling out specific individuals. Brian, Brian is a prick. Anyway, <laughs> national anthem. <laughs> yeah. Um, the flag, I should just say, is uh, formed by two equal horizontal bands of red on the top and green on the bottom with a yellow five-pointed star. I think it's a typical African star uh, in the center. You see it on a lot of African flags anyway. And the flag uses the pan-African colors of Ethiopia, reflecting both a break with the country's colonial past and its unity with other African ex-colonies. The red is said to symbolize the revolution and the green, the abundance of agricultural and natural riches, uh, which I don't know is exactly accurate. accurate. But uh, yeah. um, the yellow star is placed over the red and green stripes, represents the guiding light of the revolution. Sure. Um, so I, he- I heard it was also inspired by the, the Viet Cong flag, the star. Ah, yeah, um, I can see that, yeah. So there's a lot of things going into it. It's a good flag, though. It's, it's yeah, decent, it's yeah. Flag. It's a decent flag. A um, child could easily draw it, uh, which I think is important. Yeah. No words. No, no words, words. No, no yeah. pictures, no uh, emojis striking. or pictograms or clip art. So and you can recognize it from a distance. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I like yeah. Uh, so yeah, Sankara goes in hard on national pride, cuts as many ties with France as possible, openly criticizes the French government quite vehemently, actually, uh, and he obviously irked the elite classes, the businessmen, and anyone who had benefited from corruption in the past. Uh, did, yeah, didn't have a great relation with the Mosi. He saw their kind of tribal system as bad for national unity, uh, and he pre- proceeded to demote the the Mosi kind of elite. Uh, took powers away from them. They, they love that. The elite love that stuff. Yeah, the the Moro Naba was not allowed to hold courts anymore. Uh, local village chiefs were stripped of their executive powers, and given uh, those powers were given to regionally appointed governors. And over time, although his po- policies were, as far as I can gather, were generally popular, they didn't appear to make a dent in the poverty rate so much. Uh, and because he was sort of such a brash and kind of, um, you know, uh, trailblazing figure, he became more and more isolated, uh, both at home and abroad. Uh, there were accusations of brutality among some of these regional governors who he he put in to kind of manage the tribes and uh, also people being jailed without trial. Uh, possibly because they were corrupt, but you need to have a, a fair trial. He was a friend to Cuba, and uh, our old friend Gaddafi makes an appearance as well here. Um, 
So yet another podcast episode that he's popped up in. Yeah, we we, we um, must start tagging all the episodes Gaddafi's in. And yeah, we and probably should see if they uh, you know, what percentage of the episodes. Yeah, but I believe I believe he he met Gaddafi a few times, and they were sort of you know uh, fairly uh, fairly friendly. Uh, he was vehemently anti-capitalist, as you can imagine, and denounced the U.S. invasion of Grenada at the UN, and called for African nations to boycott the 1984 Summer Olympics in L.A. On Christmas Day in 1985, there was a brief war uh, with Mali over the mineral-rich Agashir Strip, uh, which I believe lies between the two countries. Ah, yes, the the Yellow Star. Yeah, and that lasted for about five days and killed around 100 people and ended after mediation with the Ivory Coast. And the conflict is known as the Christmas War today in Burkina Faso. Mm -hmm. None of that helped Sankara in, and in October of 1987, just one week after giving uh, a speech marking the 20th anniversary of the assassination of Che Guevara, uh, Sankara himself was shot in an attack in which uh, 12 other people, or 12 people including himself, I think, were killed. And reports indicated that he was shot several times, primarily in the back. So, uh, yeah, I think, um, Mark, you might talk a little bit more about uh, how that came to be, maybe. But uh, I think there's there's sort of a... There's always been accusations that it was tacitly approved by the French government, who were not a fan of him, uh, and also that it was organized by uh, Blaise Campoare, who was his former ally, who would help to bring him to power. Uh, but but he wouldn't benefit from this, would he? he yeah, no. I mean, let's see. Let's, <laughs> let's see, let's see what, what, what happens Blaise. with uh, yeah. old Campoare here. Um, so yeah, Mark, I, I think you're going to talk a bit about him. Yeah, for sure. And and like as you said, like you've already mentioned his name. He was he was a bit of a mover and a shaker. He he was himself from the Mossi ethnic group, uh, attended military college, um, followed by para commando training in Morocco. In nineteen eighty one he got the rather plum job of becoming head of the para commando training academy. Um, from 82, he became a lot more political. He supported Sankara in his coup, uh, helped support, um, sorry, helped mustering support uh, with the Power Commander unit, along with uh, Ghanaian and Libyan help. And uh, Campore, as he says, he's rewarded with the position of Minister uh, of State for his support and became kind of Sankara's number two, effectively. Okay. Uh, also Minister for Justice in 1985. Disagreements on security and strategy led to souring of relationships and Campore, along with the other ringleaders of the last coup, got the band back together to shoot him. <laughs> shoot him good. Okay, right. Uh, yeah, there's, there's no, there's no... So, so this isn't a maybe anymore. You, you, you... Yeah, we'll, 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 yeah, we, we'll we, get we to We should that. probably say none of this is proven necessarily, but... Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's very heavily... Much... Yeah, it's heavily... No, it's, 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 heavily it's legal rumored. fact. It's, okay. It, this is, yes, this is... I'm not worried about him coming out of the woodwork and suing me on this. Okay, one. okay. Uh, yeah, the trial was quite recent, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it it resolved uh, 22, 20, no, before twenty two, I think. But yeah, okay, it, very recently. Yeah. So uh, Campore said he was very sad about the death of his old friend, but uh, the, the 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 plotters with which he got rid of Sankara got back together again in nineteen eighty nine. And now that Campori was himself in charge, he was like, hey, no, everything's great now, guys. So he uh, he uh, killed them good. Uh, so they, they, okay. they went away pretty fast. So he then uh, ran unopposed for a seven-year term, followed by another seven-year term. That's 14 for, for counters out there. And he then got re-elected in 2005 and in 2010. 
His initial administration liberalized uh, Burkina Faso economically and even made some targeted pro-democratic changes. So it was kind of pretty, pretty welcome. People were like, yeah, this is all right. Does does liberalize mean deregulate in this context? Uh, that's a good point. Uh, like yeah, less less nationalized could 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 be. Yes, I think I think you're right. I think yeah, yeah. Sankara was nationalizing a lot of stuff, and he kind of paused slash reversed that. Yeah, so definitely so, was yeah. a lot of stuff at natural resources in like the early two thousands, uh, where lots of foreign interests were tempted in with um, you know tax rates and laws and well, stuff. I mentioned how Kampare and, and Sankara didn't agree on security. I think that kind of stuff like this was the point. Like, stop pissing off the French because yeah. you're going to get shot. And, yeah. Oh, look, they told me to shoot you. There you go. So so these changes he made allowed him to kind of move beyond the initial reputation of being a guy who killed the last guy and yeah. the guys who tried to get him out to being, you know, actually kind of a pretty big deal um, internationally. He was president of the African Union's predecessor organization, the Organization for African Unity. Okay. Um, so, yeah, th- th- things went pretty well for him for a while. Um, 2011, from a, an article from France 24, brought what was called the Burkinabe Spring. So if you recall, this was kind of the time that you know, the Arab Spring was happening and a lot of other uh, pro-democracy movements kind of uh, sparked up around the world. Uh, largely sparked by a mini military revolt around unpaid housing allowances for the presidential guard of all the people to not pay in full. Wow. So specific. Those are the guys you want to keep happy, guard. definitely. Unbelievable. So yeah. they were firing rounds into the air, uh, and then their protest was joined by other soldiers and police around the country. There was looting. Students probably burned down uh, Campori's uh, political party HQ. Yeah, just protests just like went like wildfire across the country. He shuffled some ministers around, imposed a curfew, kind of did just enough to hold on uh, through that particular storm. But then in 2014, uh, protesters against Kampori took to the streets again in October, storming radio stations, torching government buildings, uh, coming in part really down to speculation that he was going to change the constitution to allow himself to run again. So they were like, no, no, you're, you're, you're done. You, you need to leave. You've been here since 1987. It is now 2014. You need to go. And in a country with a median age of 17, yeah. that means you have been oh more than half of people's president their entire life. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so he, he fled and a uh, a military leader took over from him, Honore Traore, took over from him for one day. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm not going to like go into the backgrounds and the biographies of all of these people, but we're just going to, you know, I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to give you a number and then we're going to move on. So. It, it just turns into a total farce here. We have Honore Traore, uh, one day. Yakuba Isaac Zida, 17 days. Michel Cafando, 303 days. Gilbert Giendere, 6 days. Sharif Sai, 6 days. Michel oh. Cafando again. Safe pair of hands, though. 97 <laughs> days, I guess. And then we have Roche Mark Christian Cabore. Uh, six years, 26 days. So we're, we're going to give him more than just an honorable mention. Uh, a former prime minister under Cabore. He was elected by a narrow majority of 53%, and his party became the largest in the assembly. But... I'll just mention here, around this time, the in 2017, just as an aftermath to the whole Sankara thing, um, 
obviously Campore is now out of out of power. So kind of yeah. there's there's sort of up ups, upsurge of of kind of um you know inquiries into the death of of Sankara. In 2017, the government officially asked France. I don't know who of those guys uh, was in charge at this point that you mentioned, Mark. But the the Burkina Faso government officially asked France to declassify all documents relating to Sankara's assassination. His wife has always insisted that the French government quote masterminded the attack. But so far, as far as I can tell, though, there that hasn't been that request has not been granted. Weird. And then in April 2021, 34 years after Sankara's assassination. Former President Campore and 13 others were indicted for complicity in his murder. In October of that year, the trial began in Ouagadougou, uh, with Campore being tried in absentia. A week before the trial, Campore's lawyers stated that he wouldn't be attending the trial, which they char- characterized as having defects. And he also emphasized his privilege for immunity, being the former head of state. However, pretty much all of that was ignored. And in April of 2022, which is extremely recent for this podcast. Yep. Campore and two others were found guilty and sentenced to life in prison in absentia. And I believe Campore is currently in the Ivory Coast in exile. And yeah, in 2015, Sankara's body was exhumed as part of the inquest into his murder and the 12 people who were killed with him. And he was reburied in February of 2023 uh, at the site at which he was assassinated, which has since become a memorial for him and features a life-size statue of him pumping his fist in the air. I don't know why they exhumed his body. I mean, I mean, you know, to, to move it, sure, but he was shot many times in the back. Like, yeah, it's pretty. I'm not really yeah. sure why. And also the fact yeah. that they exhumed, as far as I can tell, they exhumed his body in 2015 and only reburied it in 2023. Ugh. I'm not sure again why that was, but uh, that's according to France 24, that report was on. So uh, I mentioned this Kabore guy. Uh, he had a longer tenure than most. Uh, and despite this kind of seeming period of stability, you know, he, he got his party majority in the assembly his tenure would also overlap with like a huge uptick in islamic extremism coming from the sahel region which burkina faso has a significant kind of uh, overlap into uh, and i th- i don't know that we've really talked about the sahel before uh, it's something that's kind of i think awareness of it is is really growing because of the mm. violence there and because it's kind of one of these regions that's you know frankly kind of borderless in and of itself it's, mm. it's a region all, all of its own thing but essentially, um, it's a triple threat of kind of mega crises. Uh, you have climate change, so there's drought, desertification, etc., uh, and dead crops. Dead crops leads us to the economic crisis, so nobody has any crops, so they can't eat them or sell them, and that means that uh, people are disenfranchised, have nothing else to do, and are easy, fertile recruitment grounds for uh, Islamic, um, you know gangs basically or indeed whatever other extremism is going at the time or yeah, yeah exactly but in, in, in the case of the sahel yes it it, it happens to be islamic in, in this case so yeah it's it's um a huge issue for Burkina faso because you know they don't have huge amounts of resources to counter this so kibori's leadership overlapped with this this huge expansion of violence and despite aligning with the neighbor, neighboring governments in chad mali mauritania and niger to create an anti-terror force called G5 Sahel, it has thus far not succeeded in reducing the violence and growing influence of these groups. And things got so bad for Kabori that in January 23rd of 2022, the carousel starts again, and a coup replaced him with rootin' tootin' constitution changing uh, and, and suspending, in fact, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Henri Sandago Damiba. Uh, Paul Henri Sandago Damiba, 249 days, didn't even last the year. Okay. He was replaced 
later in 2022 by Captain Ibrahim Traore, 246 days and counting. Actually, 247. Sorry, because it's past midnight where I am. So <laughs> you can pinpoint yeah. exactly when we're when we're recording this. I guess. Uh, so. I, I guess. I guess he can. Yeah. Uh, he may not still be. You know. Hopefully, he is. This sort of reminds me of the the Christmas goat episode <laughs> that we did, <laughs> where it's like it's still standing now, but we're not yeah. sure about when you're listening to this. Uh, well, it may I, not I, be the, anymore. The, the agreement is that basically he'll kind of sit tight until they can arrange proper elections, and then he'll move to the side is the plan heard that before um yeah indeed but um just one uh depressing quote from uh, uh i think it was oni Nseiba, uh a senior researcher at the armed conflict location and event data project which just rolls off the tongue quote the problems are too profound and the crisis is deeply rooted uh and also just the f- oh yeah then ibrahim trary invited the russian mercenary outfit the wagner group to come in and kill everyone i guess uh those are the guys who are really active in ukraine uh yeah 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 and and syria and yeah yeah um the the other thing i was gonna mention it was about the campore kind of trial and so on as he said he was found guilty in 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 absentia but weirdly he also then visited burkina faso after this conviction i didn't know that yeah he, he he returned as a free man and attended a congress of former presidents which was somehow okay, because I don't know why <laughs> he just kind of. <laughs> but like, it he it's very much yeah. I killed him. I'm sorry about that. But, uh, he had to go. <laughs> um, okay, you know one uh, former president who isn't here. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess the very final thing I'll say is just kind of the scale of what's happening with the Sahel. Um, that it went from like I think it was like fifty thousand people had been displaced in 2019, and it's up to two million now. Uh, wow. So it's it's really 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 acute. Uh, seven years of violence, and you know people people have have just kind of lost patience with the government because they can't address this thing. But this thing is so much bigger than Burkina Faso. So uh, I, you know, no one really knows where it's going to happen. And of course, you don't have any real political stability, you know, and haven't had for a long time. So yeah, well, yeah, arguably exactly. under Campoare, that was sort of it's a kind of stability, a semblance yeah. of stability. Yeah. yeah. Uh, despite the the way he came to power, but yeah, we I, I I suppose we probably should say we we try and keep this stuff light, <laughs> generally. But this is you know this is a, a quite a sad sort of state of affairs yeah. for any country. Things are not looking good. No, it's it's still a very poor country. Yeah, in in more ways than one, like not just economically, like the the political instability. Obviously, all these all these kind of crises sort of play into each other to some yeah. lesser or greater extent. But yeah, as you mentioned mark the Sahel uh, issue and the, you know, displacement of people and then the political instability and the high mortality rate is, um, yeah, it's just a a kind of a confluence of... Being landlocked also means you have all of your neighbor's problems. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Whenever something goes awry in Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, Mali... They have a lot of of neighbors. Okay. So, yeah, it's so, uh, uh, it's not a it's not a great state of affairs, but uh, yeah, look, we um, we wish them well, I suppose. Um, do you want to talk about uh, sports? I think you had a I think you had a few bits here on sports, Mark. Uh, yeah, they they won a uh, Olympic medal in the twenty twenty Summer Olympics. Uh, Hugo Fabrice Zango. Um, it was the men's triple jump, and also they have a, a Premier League player, Bertrand Isidore Traore. Uh, he's a Burkina Bay professional player for for Villa. Yeah, you might appreciate that as a Villa fan. I'm familiar with him. 
He's not re- related to the president, is he? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, no, tr- Trower is a pretty common common okay. name. Another pretty common name, but yeah, yeah, he's a he's a very handy player. I have to say, he was sent yeah, out on loan to Turkey or something. Uh, oh, was he? For the mm. first half of last season by our manager, but brought back and he's, yeah, I'm I'm a fan. I also had that the national football team is nicknamed Les Etalons, the Stallions. Yeah, mm. In reference to Yenen Gaz Stallion, that yeah. that whole story of the stallion ah, that brought across very cool. the. Okay. Um, they are still basically farming, but they have quite a bit of gold. They have the third greatest gold exports in Africa, which is actually pretty good yeah. going. Mm. And they are a joint fourteenth with Peru overall in the world of gold. But, but that's quite recent. Like that's in the last twenty years. Yeah, um, and it's it's growing as well. It's like the the one kind of positive economic yeah. aspect of what's happening there. And I did see that it's not just gold. There's copper. There's nickel. There's bauxite, which is where you get aluminium from, mm. and uranium as well. But there there is violent clashes occasionally with local communities around mining, which you know people have learned from history that mining isn't always good for your neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. Use of cyanide, for instance, in gold mining is uh, not great for the rivers, that kind of thing. So um, yeah. it's not uncontentious, but it is a big chunk of the economy, despite the quite low taxes. Like the the mining companies aren't paying a lot of tax, but it's still a huge part of the national coffers mm. because there's not much else. Yeah. Well, it's it's not a big deal if they if cyanide gets into the water because like there's just so much water in the region because they border the Sahara Desert. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, that about uh, wraps up our episode here on uh, Burkina Faso, a fascinating country, albeit... Burkina fascinating. Yeah, Burkina oh, fascinating, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, oh, had a bit of a troubled history and a little bit of a troubled present as well, but we, we hope for better things, but yeah, it's it's not looking great. Yeah, I think that's about it. You can find more episodes of this podcast at 80 Days Podcast. Dot com. Uh, you can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, there are many, many, many other episodes uh, on on many, many other places uh, that you can check out if you like this episode. C- consistently, the most popular page on our website is the episode map. So yeah, that could be a nice place to start. If you could be, yeah, where exactly. we've covered. Yep, which is, is is a lot of places at this point. Yeah, you can get in touch with us via email at 80dayspodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Uh, and you can, you know, share stuff with us there if you'd like. And we'll also be sharing images and, and uh, bits of trivia uh, from this episode as well once it comes out, which, uh, as we mentioned, we don't know when that's going to be. Maybe there'll be a new leader by then. Who knows? Um, odds, <laughs> odds are pretty high. We are also supported very generously by our patrons uh, at patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast. If you'd like to join up to support the podcast and uh, receive uh, some bonus content from time to time, we'd really appreciate it. And thanks to everyone who's still subscribed on Patreon, despite uh, some large gaps between us releasing episodes, thanks to various different uh, adulting factors (laughs) in our lives. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bill Foe.